You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. For the record, I was homeschooled for hippie reasons, not God reasons. And it wasn't even full hippie. There was no communal family and an ashram sort of thing, which is so disappointing. I've always wanted a glamorous, messed up childhood like that. Raised without clocks, around kids named Justice League or Feather. Winona Ryder had that, right? (laughs) She's so pretty. Nope, I had a middle-class hippie upbringing. More hippie adjacent than anything. We recycled before it was cool and wore Save the Whales t-shirts, and that's about it. Oh, and my mom fed us carob instead of chocolate and gave us vitamins that made our breath smell weird. But since my brother and I weren't around other kids that often, we didn't realize the breath thing until way later. Felicia Day created and starred in the web series The Guild. She's an actress featured in shows including Supernatural and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and co-starred in Joss Whedon's Emmy Award-winning internet musical Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. She created the YouTube channel called Geek and Sundry. Her new book is You're Never Weird on the Internet, Almost. Thank you for joining me, Felicia. Thanks for having me here. You tell so many wonderful stories about your upbringing, uh, homeschooling, girl genius, violin player and math prodigy, early online adapter, actress, the online world, Gamergate, and it's so engaging. And yet underneath all that is a really interesting cultural story about how human society and human community are being transformed by technology. Yeah, absolutely. And that is a theme that I didn't really know going in it that was strong (laughs) and sort of the underpinning of my career. But in kind of looking at my life uh, from an objective point of view and tracing how I got to where I am today as somebody who is in the digital world, as a performer and creator and someone who feels uh, like an outsider who's an insider now, I realized that it is a parallel story to the emergence of the internet that connects us in completely transformative ways. You begin to describe yourself, and it's almost you're almost a zealot-like. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like you say, but do I look a little familiar, like a girlfriend of someone of your cousins? And I think that that kind of uh, chameleonic quality has really helped you, and I think that's one of the core aspects of your, I think, who you are that gives you both your creative ability and your communal abilities. Yeah, I'm, I am unclassifiable in a lot of ways, and I think that's um, helped me in a lot of ways in that I, um, you know, am as searching always for creative inspiration in many different areas as anything, and also not being able to fit in as one thing has kept me um, on the prowl, so to speak, and always looking for opportunity to be innovative and, uh, and, and discover about myself and about the world. You're used to telling stories, and you're used to telling them in a digital medium, in film, and on the Internet, and you know, just to your friends via Twitter and all the social media. Writing a book is a different form of storytelling, and also... Uh, you're telling a different kind of story than you've ever told about yourself. How did you approach that? Yeah, it was very challenging. I've written um, TV scripts, uh, a couple of screenplays. I certainly am write every day online. I don't think that could be underestimated, the skill um, and the effort with which uh, to be engaging in short-form content. I think that people who, like comedians who are really talented on Twitter, like that's a skill set that should be admired because it is hard to have that impact in such a little uh, short, quick punch. So um, I, uh, that's, that's the parts that I gravitate to the most. Um, but in approaching a longer form piece, um, it was definitely something I had to think through um, as a whole. I'm always thinking about how do I just make this an entity, uh, a closed system, and doing that with a bigger, longer form piece like a book was... Uh, intimidating, but I sat down and I um, 
I just started breaking it down into littler, tinier pieces. And that sort of mathematical approach, since I have math in my background of uh, subdividing to conquer in smaller pieces <laughs> and build a, a larger piece uh, over time, really served me well. And a lot of other authors uh, recommended you know, things like using Scrivener and making sure to outline copiously before I start wandering around. And all that advice really um, lent uh, very good advice to me to get through and, and make something that I'm really proud of. Did you use Scrivener? I did use Scrivener. I used, uh, and I, I am, you know, uh, somebody who can get easily intimidated. As If you read my book, I have a lot of anxiety and, um, and uh, fear of the future in a sense, uh, that, that anxiety of messing up and things like that. So being able to use that program, which is really worth every dollar that you spend on it as a writer, I think, um, to break everything up into tasks that are manageable and, uh, and actionable was very helpful to me for someone who has worked in short form. In your book, you describe yourself as being, uh, you were brought up homeschooled. And I think that's a, an interesting uh, inception point for you, as it were, because it leads into this kind of uh, isolated uh, existence for yourself. And uh, when your parents made that decision, they didn't, obviously didn't <laughs> ask you, but uh, how did you feel about it? Did you know, think, oh my gosh, I'm missing out on all this great stuff? I don't know what I thought about it. I was so very young that, you know, it wasn't really something that as a child you think you have control over and therefore you're just like, okay, this is the new reality. <laughs> and, you know, definitely I had fits of loneliness and I think that's uh, a common thread through my life of trying to create a community and sense of belonging and that when technology entered my life um, a couple years into that homeschooling and I could reach out to other humans through that vehicle, that really was what solidified who I am today using technology to connect. And it definitely came out of that sort of sense of being isolated and sort of kept uh, in a bubble. And, um, you know, it's funny that throughout the signings I've done around the country, so many people have come up and said, I was homeschooled too, and you're the first person to ever make me feel like someone else is like me. And it's so funny because if you do have that upbringing, I think there are a lot of advantages to it because you become your own person in a much more unique way. You are not limited by a lot of pressures and societal cliches about your appearance and background. And I think you're much more willing to be self self-motivated and motivated for the sake of learning versus these external things that are imposed upon us. But at the same time, there will always be a sense of hidden loneliness because you aren't kind of dropped into this gang of other children that you have to spend all day with. So um, yeah, I think that's, it was an interesting choice and I would not change it for the world. Um, but there are benefits and, uh, and there were uh, the things that were not so great about it as well. You know, this book is also a really interesting examination of how we create our identities and how they're created for us by external circumstances. And I think that that's a theme that's really clear in this book. And as you wrote the book, did you find yourself becoming yet another person and, and by examining how you'd become who you were before? That's a really great question. No one has asked me, but you're absolutely right. That is a discovery. I am a much more functional person having written this book, and I, I, I never would have thought that. But I think anybody who um, can back up and look at their life in an objective way, in a way that you're examining the twists and turns and incidents in your life and adding up how the, the equation of yourself in a way, A plus B plus C plus D, D E, F, G <laughs> equals me in a way. And if you could do that in a, uh, and, and approach it to be helpful to other people, that allows you to kind of get your emotional self out of the way and look at the math of yourself and see you know, this is who I am why I, and why I am the way I am. And I'm a much more functional, bit, centered person because of um, the journey of making my story useful to others. You described uh, yourself as looking at yourself objectively. Did that come easily or naturally, or was it, uh, did it, was it a struggle? I think it was a struggle in some of the incidents like uh, early in my life and later in my life because, um, you know, the middle where I start to find, you know, create the guild, I've done a lot of press and 
you know, talking about that journey of mm-hmm. creating in my garage and just creating this career that's amazing. But really surveying my younger um, self and why I became addicted to video games, why I am always felt a little outcast because of my childhood, um, how I got so incredibly overcome by depression and anxiety later on, uh, and just the the wounding nature of negativity online and how much it affected me more than I realized. Uh, th- those things were not uh, readily apparent in, in, a, in, a, in a way that made it conveyable to other people until I decided to convey it. You know, I, I love the stories of your early life and uh, especially that you uh, liked Perry Mason. I had a Perry Mason <laughs> period myself when my my children were very young, and I would I, I was a fan of the show, and I just would it was on afternoons, and we were home in the afternoons, and I watched Perry Mason incessantly with my kids. <laughs> <laughs> that was the Law and Order of its time. Uh huh. Yeah, no, I love. I think there's a part of me that doesn't want a world to end, mm-hmm. and that is maybe what's appealing to video games for me. But those long series of, of books like Mary Perry Mason and, um, you know, uh, Mike Hammer and what else did I read? Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys and all those sort of serialized novel um, forms and heroes. I think those are the ones that I love so much because I don't want these worlds to end. I want to be a part of them emotionally and that escapist sort of if – if it could be different kind of idea is is very strong in my heart. And that's, uh, you know, those are the things I'm attracted to in any medium. But Perry Mason particularly was uh, the first one that I, I definitely glommed onto emotionally. I really wanted to be a secretary. <laughs> <laughs> well, I eventually that happened in a sense. <laughs> I know, it did. In my acting career, I was always cast as secretaries. So that, again, is a weird thread that... Uh, being helpful to other people and uh, <laughs> maybe that's why maybe that's why I, I think you just added something in my life that I uh, I didn't even know thank you <laughs> it strikes me too that Perry Mason was your first in- entree into a virtual world it was it was uh, the first formative world um that and you know Trixie Belden and those other kind of kid mysteries those mm-hmm. those were my first alt realities and since I watched so much film noir as well that almost became this ideal that I wish I could walk around in a hat and with those silk stockings <laughs> <laughs> now uh, I you give a, a really one of the things that makes this book so much fun to read is you like everybody pretty much in it there's a few people you don't like uh, towards the end and we'll talk about them but you have a, such a generous and uh, appreciation of the people in your life, particularly your family. I really love the portrait of your mother, your grandmother, and your father, and, and your grandfather, who all were really big influences by virtue of the fact that they were more all you had. You didn't have your your uh, peers. Yeah. No, my family, I love my family, and, you know, we have a lot of options in, in life as to what to dwell on. And certainly, you know, the the core and heart of the book, I wanted it to be inspirational and motivating and positive. I think there's a lot of cynicism in entertainment nowadays and uh, a condemnation of a certain naivety if you dwell on the positive. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that actually helps us as people. I see a lot online where people feed negative emotions into each other and and it leads just to unhappiness and sort of a rot in, in oneself. And um, although I don't have a ton of negative things, I could say, I certainly could have portrayed my, um, you know, some of the more lonely aspects of my childhood oh, sure. uh, more. But really the overwhelming, uh, you know, idea of it is that I am helped and guided by the people around me. I am better by the people uh, in my life, uh, adding to it and expanding the way I see other people and empathizing with them. And I think that's something we could all have in our heart, that if we look at um, our expression of ourselves as something to affect other people, um, I certainly want to affect people in a positive and more open way than negative. Well, this is, I think, a, a, an excellent, this book is a great book. It's it's a book about the transformative power the positive transformative nature of technology in the hands. It's its all a tool. It's what you do with it. You use a hammer to build a house or 
uh, like Maxwell's silver hand. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. And I do, ha- I guess, you know, the Pollyanna view of the internet w- is not universal in here, but it is because that's my experience. I mm-hmm. was able in my life to always feel enriched and connected and belonging through technology. And that really is what the best of the internet can do. And I think there is negativity and there is, uh, you know, toxicity. And that's the same as real life. And the more that we transform our online life to be bigger and bigger portion of our existence, the more we need to be careful what we define as our online space and our patterns of behavior and the things we let into our life online. And uh, there are so many wonderful tools to express yourself and be a pure form of yourself online. And I think that's what I would love to encourage people to focus on. That's, I think, what this book does incredibly well. And one of the the reasons it does it and one of the ways it does it is your portrayal of how you experience the Internet. And you really came of age in a real sweet spot for the Internet (laughs) because you were adolescent when the Internet was adolescent, essentially. So uh, what was your very first experience with a computer? Was was that the the compact? Yeah, it was a... (laughs) compact portable thing. Yeah, I have a picture of a a computer like the one that my parents had, and it was as big as a table, and it was a quote-unquote laptop. And it had a maybe, I don't know, five-inch screen on it Mm -hmm. that was only green and black. And my mother would insert her five-and-a-quarter floppy disk and play Infocom games, which were text-based adventures, essentially interactive novels as game. And I would sit on her lap and watch it at, like, age, you know, six or seven. And I would uh, marvel at the fact that you had agency with a story through a game. And I thought that was a beautiful thing, and it made me, you know, especially being isolated, not having a lot of agency to go places as a child, uh, that was always something that I saw as another world to be free, another world to find myself. And, um, you know, the more we got our own computer, my brother and I, and we played games through that, and always had this idea that you could log on um, with this modem thing, which we had back then to dial up through the phone lines and connect with other people, um, I would just be an early adopter on every step of that because it was such a formative part of my life. Well, you talked about uh, the agency of story, and I think that's one of the real powers. I mean, humans define themselves as stories. If I ask you who you are, here it is. You told tell a story. <laughs> and I think sitting in front of that computer and seeing the story unfold in words and seeing your mother interact with that, just as you described that experience, that's a super pure and powerful experience of just raw story. Yeah. No, and and you know, as child, as children, you 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 want to be wandering yourself by yourself. You want to have your own individuality take over and feel capable and uh, and have agency. And you know, even if you're in school as a child, you don't necessarily have agency, um, except you know if you're imagining and you're mm-hmm. creating your own worlds or living in others. And that's where other people's stories are so important to us to enrich us and allow us to create our own stories through their stories. And certainly gaming is a, um, a form of entertainment that I think is not appreciated from a storytelling aspect um, enough because it is transformative in, in that you're not passively um, e- engaging with a story of somebody else. You're actively engaging. It allows you to, and I, I hadn't even thought about it until, again, you just said it. In a sense, when you involve yourself in a game, you're, you become an actor or actress. Yeah, and it's not like you have full agency, although mm-hmm. some games do have very open world, and um, you feel a lot more agency, like Skyrim or even Grand Theft Auto. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, these games are... <laughs> I'm wandering around and I have certain tasks that I could do or I could just ride my horse. And there is a sense of freedom. And I think in, in, a, in a very long-term view, that kind of agency and freedom of story is going to just increase more and more in our lives as gamification and online participation um, and projection of ourselves increases with technology. I mean, if you have a VR uh, uh, you know, goggles on, you can truly be somewhere else. You can be another person in another world and have immense agency. I don't know, and I don't know if humans will be able to resist that kind of technology um, creatively or just as an actor, in a sense, because you're right, you are an actor. 
And uh, the other aspect which you bring up is, of course, the addiction uh, to these to these games. And for you, this uh, your first experience of games is so charming and so interesting in terms of learning to uh, interact with other people. Tell us about your three-way cell phone friendship with these guys. This <laughs> is just so sweet and interesting. Yeah, no, I, I got this online um, service called Prodigy, which allowed oh, yeah. me and my brother to log on very early. This was like 90... I don't know, three and f- two, three and four, early 90s. And it was an unlimited logon. So you could pay a flat fee and log on and use the uh, bulletin boards and the games and the message and news uh, as much as you want. And that was really a revolution because before it was kind of a, a dollar per hour situation. So you didn't have the freedom to really be on there all the time. And me and my brother connected to a, a group called the Ultima Dragons, which was an amazing just bulletin board where people loved Ultima games, which is a computer pr- role-playing game that has a lot of agency with it, actually. A lot of role-playing and storytelling and um, projection of self as the main character, the avatar. Um, So I was addicted to these games, and the fact that I could celebrate those games with other people who knew what I was talking about was just a freedom and joy that I could never um, displace. And uh, certain people uh, around my age, boys, (laughs) who were close to my age and, and had my same interests, we started talking on the phone and developing really deep friendships. Um, and uh, that led to kind of like crushes, which led to an in-game meetup with my mom taking me there, which led to my first kiss in a parking lot, which was not the best experience. <laughs> it's so funny the way you describe <laughs> that. You have a lot of fun with your stories about yourself. You have a great, and let me mention here too, a key tool and joy about this book is your prose style, which is very lighthearted and really easy to read. Thank you for that. I actually worked very hard on that. You know, it was a, a eight, you know, 16 months to do the draft and because I took it very seriously and I'm a reader. So I wanted this to really be something I could stand up and say, this is literally all of me <laughs> in a sense. And um, I would go back and read aloud uh all the passages to make sure that it flowed in the mind as well as the the, the heart, <laughs> in a sense. And I think that's a lot of people really love the audiobook because I perform it because I'm I practiced it in a sense wow. because I wanted to make sure that as an actor, sometimes you get dialogue and you can't deliver it because on the page it reads very well, but out of the mouth it is impossible. Mm-hmm. So that was the the last step, the last sniff test of all my pro writing. So thank you for for saying that. I wanted it to tumble just like the way I talk, which is a little too fast. <laughs> well, I think it, it, that's good as a reader because we just want to keep reading and immersing ourselves in, our, in your world. And that's an interesting kind of experience because as we're immersing ourselves in your world, you're immersing yourself in your own world and from a kind of a distance. And you do a good job of like describing what it is to how you um, slowly come into this vision of yourself and, and learn to talk with other people. And I think one of the things that you uh, allude to a few times, but um, I don't know if you ever specifically mention it, is something called imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is a natural outgrowth of, the, on, of forming your identity online because there's always this kind of suspicion that maybe I'm not really good enough or maybe I'm not really me. That's interesting. I don't, uh, uh, yeah, definitely I experienced that quite a bit in that um, being being outside of it, you can control your outer appearance quite a lot online. You can craft yourself in a mm-hmm. way. You, um, and I, I'm not. You make a fun hat for your gnome self. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I make a fun hat. <laughs> yeah, and you are, and, and, you know, being so attracted to building a character and, and identity and, and really being in a vacuum so that you don't – I think a lot of our identity is formed um, as, as, a, as a reflection of what other people's expectations are from us mm-hmm. in unconscious ways. And growing up in a vacuum, I didn't, never had those pressures to sort of you know, sculpt who I am. So maybe that's why I'm an actor because I do enjoy being given a set of circumstances and acting under it. And the online world where I can you know, um, pump up sort of like some of the positive things and, uh, in, my, in my life – um, and that, that sense of being an imposter, that uh, who am I to say that I'm important to talk to, because being scrutinized is a little bit um, intimidating for me. Uh, so I, I, 
it's an interesting thing to bring up, and I guess I want to mash it around in my head a little bit to, to, to connect the two dots. But certainly the online world allows you to be who you are on the inside authentically without the pressures of other people sort of baking you in a certain you know, sh- I, I, I think of it like a jello mold, mm-hmm. you know, you, uh, a lot of the times <laughs> the way that we look on the outside influences the way people treat us, like mm-hmm. our race, our gender, our age. And the online world allows you to kind of make that jello mold a little bit different to what you want it to be versus what everyone else is pressing you to be. Now, uh, one of the episodes I thought that was really fun to read about, and I think somewhat telling was the astrology episode. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so explain how that came about, and I think that gives a good intimation of who you would eventually become. Oh, really? Tell yeah. me how. I, I mean, I love astrology, and I love rules. I love personality tests. I love mm-hmm. psychology. I love figuring out who people are, why they are they the way they are, and who I am. I think it was primarily a search for uh, growing up in a vacuum, like I said, like, who am I? Who what what kind of person should I be? And having a rule tell me, oh, you're a homebody. Oh, yes, I kind of like home. They're totally right. I should do more of that. Um, yeah, I think, you know, having having so few... But you went out. What was fun, I thought, was that you, once you had all those rules, you went out and took them to, to this to other group people. of friends and <laughs> kind of like, and used them to kind of math them out. Yeah, well, I, I like guiding people. Uh-huh. I, do, I do love helping people. And in that format, I was like, oh, let me help you. This is why you're not good at math, Sally. (laughs) (laughs) It's clear because your sign says you shouldn't be good at scientific things. So I I mean, I do, I love, and that's kind of a theme in the work that I do. Uh, A lot of the times when I make videos producing or in front of the camera or behind the camera, it's introducing people to new new things. They could add to their identity, Um, whether it's being a geek or a tabletop gamer or introducing them to a new author. I really do love introducing new things to people and expanding their world um, through the things that I respond to. Now, uh, you it certainly, um, you had this fabulous education, prodigy violinist, um, math superstar, Moved to LA to become an actress, not necessarily an <laughs> equation. That does, that's not a one plus one equals two. No, it isn't. I mean, and I think you know maybe I I could have laid that in a little bit more in in the book, but I I the acting is so self contained in a way because it was a left curve and it mm-hmm. was a leap of faith in a in a very strange way. But well, in well, reflecting, as we, as we read your voice, it seems natural. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I understand it. But I think when you just lay the bare bones out, you kind of like go, huh? Yeah. Well, that was part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the feeling of destiny of being the chosen one is uh, was strong with this one. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, it, it was a situation where I did a lot of theater when I moved around as a kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, that relative isolation was opened up a lot by the freewheeling community theater scene. You know, if you watch Waiting with waiting for Guffman like some of the productions I was in was like were like that and I was always like the fifth can-can girl from the left and uh, I never really had the starring role but I loved making a play with people and that was something that I derived a lot of joy and freedom from and so when I got out of regimented sort of 4.0 land college I wanted that freedom to sort of roam and play with people and the naive idea that Hollywood was going to provide that playing for me was just uh I was so naive that's the only thing you could say and I loved um you know I did volunteer for film festivals quite a bit when I was in Austin and I did love the independent spirit of indie film so um that counterculture sort of rabble rousing thing obviously is something I do even today and uh combining those two things meant moving to LA and I can't say that it was smart, and I actually say in the book it was a very dumb decision, and I was not educated or um, equipped to take on, you know, this weird, rarefied external world, but I did it anyway. Well, I think, too, one of the things you described this first in college uh, with regards to uh, uh, recital that you had where that went very badly, where you discovered, I think, and this is a theme throughout the book, use the word mortify. <laughs> a lot. And I think in this book, one of the things we under, come to understand is the positive power of embarrassment. 
which is an emotion that I really am interested in. And I think that you do a great job of exploring that throughout this book. Yeah, I feel shame quite often. So I feel shame even, you know, when I go, sometimes I'll interact with someone and I'll just be so mortified. And I think it's because not having a ton of social interactions, Mm -hmm. I didn't mess up enough when I was a kid. (laughs) I wasn't shunned enough as a kid. I didn't have the calluses that most people have. And I have this acute sense of, um, you know, making the wrong move. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think that, uh, that my anxiety sort of feeds that. So certainly the shame of that particular situation was because I hadn't, um, failed a lot in front of other people. I hadn't been on display as much as most kids do. And, you know, getting into college and being, having a lot of expectation on my shoulders because I did, you know, I was quite good at the violin and I was young and I was, uh, you know, uh, considered, you know, a standout. And that pressure is something that has been a theme in my life that I haven't been equipped to deal with and has set me back. But in also a lot of ways, it has been helpful to me um, in sort of picking myself back up and keeping going in in the face of, you know, a a lot of negativity. Now, uh, once you got to LA, but you did get work eventually and you did started to do pretty good but you also picked up an interesting habit returning to the days of your youth when your brother introduced you to uh, crack I mean <laughs> world of Warcraft yes <laughs> it's the uh, I guess the the internet's version of crack yeah and I do in my book try to create that door opening to people who've never been a gamer to understand the what it is physically. Mm-hmm. And why someone would be into it. Because mm-hmm. I think gaming is this weird sort of cliche closed system that a lot of people externally don't understand. And I wanted people to understand why it was beautiful for me, why there are problems sometimes, and why it might be something to explore or at least not judge in a, in a very traditional way um, throughout. And my brother introduced me to this game. And it's, you know, a place where millions of people online around the world log on and have an avatar of themselves and kill monsters together and chat and have a good time. It's kind of like going to the bar, except you're all in different worlds. <laughs> I, uh, so I, I got addicted to that game because I was working as an actor and paying all my bills in an amazing way. But I was I had 90% of my time free. And a lot of that time was filled with auditioning and being rejected every day. And it felt very bad. And I did not know how to succeed in a way because I was doing all the hard work in a, in a world that doesn't re- necessarily reward hard work. It's all about luck and the external appearance of you. And that's just what Hollywood is. And, um, and it was something I couldn't crack. And after several years, I was upset and depressed about it. And instead of kind of deal with that and add something, you know, a little bit more uh, long term to my, um, my toolbox, like a skill, <laughs> I decided to play World of Warcraft, which is a skill. I was very good. I was a very good warlock, um, and I would play as a hobby, and the unhappier I got, the more and more I played because I used it as a Band-Aid on my life. But I think also, as you said, it, it, it was a skill for you, and I think one of the things that you experienced in there was the power of story and the power of creating a, a story in a world that's not our world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you um, live the story that is laid out for you, the map of it Mm -hmm. um, in the game, the quests that you're assigned, the lore that's involved in the world, the, the look of it, and the, and then you have the story of your friends online. The story of how this person always does, you know, this thing in a fight or this person is always talking about their boyfriend or so there are multi there there are multiple stories going on um, and and your communal world with this group of friends in this other world. And it's a very attractive, awesome thing if you use it in moderation. There's no I don't think there should be any shame. Um, mm-hmm. to saying though that's where I spend my time with my friends versus offline. I think it's when just like drinking with your friends on a Friday night, you can log in with your friends and play uh, with them. But if you start drinking uh, on your own and being sad and drinking way too much, drinking with your friends too much, it's just as bad as playing video games too much. And and I think that's where the uh, distinction lies and where I would like people to understand it as well as understanding myself better in retrospect. Well, I think that um, as you explore this in print, and I think that that's, it's very interesting to me that you decided to write a book about yourself as opposed to, um, you know, do an online series about yourself. I mean, it, it's almost as if, you know, uh, 
it, it's like making a, a classical music opera about a rock band. <laughs> <laughs> it's a step back in a sense, technologically and in terms of uh, just a storytelling medium. Well, you know, and I did initially approach it that I wanted to try to do a, like a multimedia situation where mm-hmm. I would mix pictures and video and, and prose mm-hmm. all together in some kind of app or something. And I did have this idea going into it and really – once I started getting into the logistic of it, first of all, that's very expensive and experimental. And and second of all, you know, the people who I admire in the format, like Tina Fey and John Cleese and all these biographies I've read over the years, um, it felt like such a way to bridge the gap. Because we, uh, you know, my life is about bridging the gap between technologies mm-hmm. and online world and offline world. And to do a book that could be an ebook and a regular book and an audio book, that's a lot of formats that people can... Uh, get into. And I, I, I feel like if I were going to reach people who are outside my world, a book would actually be a great vehicle for it. Well, I think, too, that uh, the through line of reading and prose gives people a much crisper and clearer uh, experience of your life as opposed to the multimedia where you're kind of going here, going there, going here, going there. I, I mean, I can It's a see. closed system. Yeah, it's yeah. creating a fabric. I uh-huh. mean, that is a world. It's world building in a sense, right? Oh, oh so yeah, absolutely. It, it, uh, it's something – I love world building. I like uh, <laughs> making sure that, you know, the tone is consistent and it's a seamless world where you feel like I'm in and I'm out. And, and, and that's what I love about books. And to be able to do that myself was a bucket list item. So – yeah, you wrote your own uh, version of the Wheel of Time. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, maybe uh, divided by a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. Now, um, as you were uh, pursuing a successful acting career and a relatively highly successful uh, career in World of Warcraft, I mean, you were good at it and yeah. enjoying it. You uh, joined something called Chicken. What yeah. was Chicken, and how did that that actually led you? to, I think, uh, a really key transformative point in your life. Yeah, Chicken was a support group, and uh, I think it was out of the secret. So uh, I'm sorry about that. That's a little embarrassing, but, uh, you know, whatever helps you. So uh, a group of women, um, one of the one of which uh, whom was Kim Evie, who was my producer through the Guild for many, many years, and uh, my first acting teacher, or sketch writing teacher. She uh, and I had lunch after she taught my sketch class, uh, uh, and she said, I have this group of people. You want to come up and join? And I was like, I guess. I don't know why I would do that, but it seems like it's different. And I'm bored. So I would show up every week, and um, all the women would kind of relay what they uh, what they were accomplishing that week toward their overall goals in life. And mine, uh, I ended up showing up for six months and only kind of telling people I was playing World of Warcraft. And that sort of external support slash uh not judgment but like (laughs) um object objective relaying of what I was actually doing with my time got me to realize I needed to make a big change in my life or at least add something else to my life to make me feel more meaningful so that kind of support especially through the writing process and the struggle with this addiction I had and seeing them and having someone to be accountable for was very very valuable to me and I would never be here today without those women really showing up. That really was 90% of it, making someone force me to show up. As you were showing up at Chicken, uh, you began to have some ideas for doing something for the web. So you had this, and I want to kind of ratchet back a little bit because you do describe, I think, a really um, powerful transformative moment uh, when you first looked at a browser. I mean, this is a huge thing. And you also mentioned Telnet. I used to use Telnet every day in my life back in in the dinosaur age. (laughs) So uh, tell us about how Telnet led you eventually to this browser and where the browser led you to, which is uh, something called GeoCities. Yeah, well, um, GeoCities was something I knew about, but it really was Usenet and... Um, Usenet, wow! You, yeah. you were on Usenet? Yeah, it was. Well, the dragons were there. The oh, Ultimate okay. Dragons and the Wheel of Time fan series and, you know, other, a bunch of other places that I hung out. and Rec.arts.sf.written. <laughs> I don't know if I was there, but oh, that okay. maybe was your hang. That was where I hung out, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, um, I, while I was in college, um, I had a boyfriend who was in computer science, and he was like, go to the computer lab and use this... You know the internet or this uh, the 
they it wasn't even referred to as the internet really it was no. like the university computer system mm-hmm. kind of a weird way and um i just dis- discovered the online world which was essentially an alta vista login thing which was so confusing i had no idea what to do with it and when you search for things not much would pop up because the internet was not much back then it was it was like a small town that just got urban sprawl happening uh, slowly but surely. So when I discovered this, I immediately made my I made my real estate and I have a picture of my very first website that I made, which was awful, um, through the University of Texas um, tools. And uh, I loved it. I, I found that I did, rediscovered after a couple of years offline, um, getting adjusted to college, the love of connecting with other people online again. And um, that kind of led me to be online, you know, from my house and using Telnet to dial up to this university system where I got access to this internet world. And that was kind of the infancy of the internet. MySpace pages. <laughs> I remember MySpace. Yeah, I remember everybody said, Rick, you have to have a MySpace page. Yeah, it was very sad. It kind of made, puts a perspective that any, any online account that you have could just disappear tomorrow. And, um, you know, just because it feels like Facebook will never go away 10 years from now, you know, very Facebook. easily. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's all uh, whistling in the wind already. It is. Uh, when you uh, were working with Chicken, mm-hmm. um, you had started to get this idea that you wanted to tell a story that, essentially almost the story you tell in this book, that to give people who weren't gamers an idea of what it was like to be a gamer. Yeah, I wanted to write a story. I wanted to write. That was always something that was in my mind. And um, people often give you advice, write what you know. And some people poo-poo that. But I think that the the overall message is just write something that resonates with you that you have some truth to reveal. And that doesn't necessarily need to be your life. It just needs to be something that you you have a unique perspective on and you want to share it so that other people see the world differently. And I think that was what um, I decided to do with gamers just randomly. And I wanted to write a television show because I wanted to be a television actor. And I wrote, um, I wrote The Guild, which was a half-hour comedy. And I forced myself through thick and thin. And I, I talk about a lot of the writer's block I had, um, you know, digging in and forcing myself through agony of writer's block and... Um, you know, feeling like a failure and uh, and that sort of fatalistic attitude of nothing I'm doing is right. Um, but I did, you know, muscle my way through and wrote a script uh, about gamers called The Guild that I was convinced was going to be the next uh, Friends. And it was not to be in that format. Well, but you you have it actually in many ways it was the next friends it was just the next friends for the internet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i I mean not as mainstream popular but yeah that was the goal i wanted to make um i wanted to please gamers Mm -hmm. i wanted to please the people who knew what i was talking about and i never aimed to be like uh something on the street that somebody would understand although i wanted to show people that gaming was cool ultimately but i wanted to amuse the people i would have raided with i wanted to ruse my brother <laughs> you know that was really who i was aiming for and i knew that there was a truth that other people would see in that uh, if they were in the world and i knew it would be a success if i could just reach those people now there are two steps to in a sense to to doing this the first was writing it and that proved to be easier said than done yeah no i definitely had a lot of writer's block and I think it's a question of the support group would ne- w- is the only reason I would have gotten through it. And I think, you know, especially if you're not trained to know that the process is a long one and that you are not going to immaculately conceive a perfect draft the minute you put your finger on a keyboard, um, you know, that it is a hard thing to take on. And I think, uh, I hope that people reading the book are encouraged that no one is um, someone who just puts the perfect draft down on paper immediately. I, I, those people, I, I am very, very jealous, but I don't think, it, I think it's few and far between. Once you had uh, a script, you had to film it. And again, easier said than done. Absolutely. I, we shot in our houses for about, you know, $1,500. We put together just cobbling uh, crew together, favors. Uh, I talk about, you know, borrowing cameras searching for trash on the sidewalk you know there's a lot there's a lot you of have things. five great rules yeah the five great rules i don't know exactly what they are but i i do remember a lot of them involve not letting people back in your house if you <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that chapter about making the guild is really formative in that you know i i 
I, I had to rewrite that chapter many times. Really? Because you've done a lot of media about this. this is, yeah. This. And I had to kind of like chip through my own lore mm. in my own talking points, so to speak. And then I needed to not be as reverential because I really am appreciative of every fan who showed up and everybody who lent me a camera, anybody who worked for free. And it sort of kind of had this uh, sense of it that was not it didn't show the bumps. The warts were hard. I had to dig for the warts mm. and, and the ironies and sort of the sardonic attitude that I sort of had to my whole life. And when I got there, I was like, oh, I'm not insulting anyone. I'm just having fun with the foibles. And really that was the key to that, which I had to work very hard on to, to, to emerge from my, my own story. Now, having uh, shot this, you, it's one thing to shoot it. It's another to... Uh, get people to see it how did you go about doing that because i mean at that time uh there was it, youtube and then the rest the, was not ubiquitous it was not on everybody's phone no um we didn't have that was like just when the iphone was coming out mm -hmm. mobile revolution which is really where the turning point of, of technology is happening um was not there so i just basically thought about my audience and i was going to be um you know a panhandler when it came to just handing out flyers, quote unquote, to virtual audience. So I would go and I looked at it. It was kind of a game for me. I would look at new startups and I would be like, hey, can I reach new people here? I got to make an account and I'll maintain it and I'll upload it and I'll talk to every single fan that I can possibly talk to. It was a full-time double job to really build a, a fan base fan by fan. And I was there. Nobody else was the voice of the show except me. And I, I do believe that sort of cult of personality is in, in incumbent um, upon somebody who makes online content. Because, um, like, you know, if you, if you think about it, you, you think about famine, for instance, which is uh, not funny at all. But uh, you don't really identify with that as a phenomenon that you need to care about in a general sense. And they, and they do a lot of studies about this psychologically if – if you show people 100 people starving, people won't care as much. But if you show one person and name them and make them a person to you, you are then emotionally involved and you care about that 20 million times as much. It's like Cecil the Lion, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that goes on every day and it's a horrible thing that, you know, people in the know might be outraged about and want to change. But until you have that one thing that you emotionally log on, and it was that person you emotionally log on to. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, then people want to do something about it. Uh, but it, it was not if it, if it didn't exist. And I think that's really the key to online world, making that, being a person. And that was what I did with the Guild. And, you know, so over the months and you know, getting people to care about the show, that was really the task at hand. And I did it because I love my show so much. Well, I think that uh, part of your one of your talents is not just writing the show, acting in the show. Uh, as you say, you're a, you're a master of PR or mistress <laughs> of PR, as it were. You know, I guess online PR. That's and that's a huge thing. I mean, if a painting hangs on a wall, if nobody sees it, it might as well not have been painted, eh? I guess so. Yeah, and I think you know we think of PR and marketing in a very manipulative way, but. I always think authentically, like what's useful to someone? What will delight them? And anything we make, I, I try not to be end result oriented. Mm -hmm. I really honestly try to think what was going to delight someone who I send something directly to. Mm -hmm. Anything I make, if I would IM it to my brother. And, you know, you can't have a 100% success rate in that. But any of the things that I put my heart into, I always want to make them useful and delightful. And that's the, the core of everything I do. Now... Through, as a result of all this, you have become kind of a, a spokesperson for a whole generation of women online. I mean, and that's natural. Yeah, I guess. You know, I never approached it as a woman issue. Mm -hmm. I just put, approached it as here I am. I'm a little bit weird, but I'm proud of all the weirdnesses. And that's, you know, that's where I got the title of the book because, um, you know, the genderfication of me is kind of an external thing. I mean... I am who I am, and I happen to be a woman. And um, the fact that that frees other women to be themselves is awesome. The fact that it frees men to be themselves as well is super important to me too. I think we have a lot of uh, boundaries between us based on um, the cliches put on us that we then impose on other people, um, especially based on our outward appearance, about the way we have been born. And there's no reason um, to limit ourselves like that. So I always 
you know, I talk about in my book that I, I never was like a woman gamer or a girl gamer. I am a gamer and I happen to be a girl. And um, I'm at the table regardless of who else is around me. And I think that sense of transcending and jumping over other people's expectations is something I want to encourage in everybody because we are limited only by the way we see ourselves and the way other people see us. Um, so I am very grateful to be um, somebody who represents women, but I want to represent um individuality first and foremost. You embrace in this book and in your life the transformative nature of technology to take us beyond uh, our own gender. uh, Yeah, and I think it is. That is a beautiful thing, you know. And I I think if you look at cultures and societies, I love world building. And a part of world building is the way that people behave and what society or what other societies tell people they are and should be. And if you look at different cultures – you know, being a woman in this country is different from being a woman in France or a woman in Afghanistan or a woman in Japan uh, or uh, a man in any of those countries. We are told a lot of gender stereotypes and, um, and mindsets that aren't are, – they are malleable. There are more malleable things in this world than we realize. And we are, uh, we are brought up with a, a given set of circumstance that not aren't inviolate, and I think the uh, the online world gives us the opportunity to take those rules and break them, because they are in fact completely arbitrary. <laughs> so um, if I could free people from feeling like they are um, an outsider or abandoning something because a rule has told them they shouldn't be that thing, um, I that is the victory that I want to empower people to embrace. In this book, you deal with an online controversy called GamerGate. Uh, for those who are outside that world, what was it and what was your part in it? So um, that chapter is um, something that I actually wrote before the incident of that we all called Gamergate happened. Really? I, I had a chapter about negative negativity online. Mm-hmm. And most of that chapter was including uh, in it. the country. The, I talk about a country music video that basically sparked an online hate group. Um, you know, uh, to attack me, especially around my gender and gaming. And, um, you know, subtle things over the years, because uh, uh, in, in, there is an underbelly of gaming that makes people feel other and is a little bit hostile. And it is not the majority of gaming at all, but it is a vocal minority. And it has been increasingly um, vocal as gaming has expanded and more women have said, hey, I really do like gaming. Um, in a more public way, or discover gaming and just come into the, it. And I think the traditional sort of um, homogeneity of, of mostly guys um, being uh, the, the foremost voice and, and infrastructure of gaming, um, some people rebelled against those new people coming in. So there have been like sort of, uh, and I talk about this in my book, like the hatred is not new. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what was new is this incident where um, a man uh, who was in, you know, had a, had a girlfriend who was a game developer, and she basically made very liberal sort of progressive games, and he uh, spilled their whole breakup online, and it was a very hateful incident and, and led to a mob attacking her and shaming her. And, I you know, it's a virtual version of a pitchforks. And out of that morphed, um, you know, a movement that was tangential in that it was about uh, quote-unquote ethics in journalism because one of the allegations against her was n- that was not true was that she slept with reviewers to get reviews and it was not accurate but that was the lore that mm-hmm. was around the incident and so a splinter group sort of formed and I can't even explain it and I'm sure some people will make better books on this than, than that but you know there was just an incident where um, a whole movement started started attacking all gaming journalists women in, in who would stand up against it um and it was just was a very toxic, terrible atmosphere that took over gaming um, uh, in, in a weird uh, sort of flood. And it, was, uh, and, and it was not good. And I, my part in it is that I stayed silent about it, except for sort of being uh, on the proximity of it because I was afraid um, of being attacked. And I had already had an incident, you know, I talk about this in my book, where people had shown up to my house the year before, the people who I believed were the core of uh, the attacks on this woman, um, spawning this Gamergate thing. So it's this weird amorphous thing that, uh, in result, you have uh, people afraid to speak up because they don't want to be attacked and made vulnerable and have their personal lives sort of on display um, in an unsafe way. And I spoke up eventually because I was ashamed of um, not speaking up. 
And I was um, seeing my patterns of behavior and interaction with the world of gaming um, influenced in a negative way. And I was angry about that because um, unconsciously I had dis- uh, I had started to separate myself from gaming because I um, didn't want to be uh, either attacked by these bad players or um, just I felt like I wasn't belonging anymore. Mm. Um, and that was sad for me. So I spoke up and I got attacked, you know, naturally got attacked by some of the, you know, the worst people because they had that ammunition already ready. And, uh, and everyone, you know, it became a big media thing. And it's not something I, uh, I want to hang my identity on at all. Um, I'm, gaming to me is a beautiful thing and mm-hmm. it brings people together. And the fact that, um, you know, that basically is now an anchor to my reputation in gaming is not great for me. But I certainly speaking up, um, you know, was something I felt incumbent upon doing because I do represent gamers and women gamers in particular. Um, and I, my remaining silent just was out, of, out of the negative aspect was no good for me or anybody else who actually needed that support. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, the chapter is very honest in what happened to me personally and my perspective on everything. And I, I hope that out of that, people um, are not driven away by gaming. I hope that they know that gaming, the majority, the vast majority of gamers are inclusive and it is a community and it is a wonderful hobby that can have a positive um, force in your life. So. <laughs> well, I think, too, what that brings out is that anywhere on the Internet, if you care to see a preview of the end of civilization, simply look to the comments. You'll probably, <laughs> you'll probably find a, a, a good sneak preview of uh, some version of apocalypse. Yes, and I think, uh, you know, it's it's a sad testament in the darker side of the Pollyanna view that I have of mm-hmm. uh and Pollyanna, not in a disparaging way, just the positive view, um, that proactive negativity is always present in our society. It just happens to be stronger in anonymity, with the cloak of anonymity. Um, because um, as, as great as the internet can make you feel like you belong, if you're odd, you can also make you feel you belong if you are odd in a negative way. <laughs> well, I think what the power of this book is that you... When, we, when we're done reading this book is that we feel this is a great and positive place to be where it offers yet another outlet for our creativity. And I think that that's the, the, what the takeaway, as it were, from this book is that we have, in the Internet, uh, we've created a transformative technology that allows us to recreate ourselves and recreate our worlds and that allows everybody to have the access to the tools of world building, not just science fiction authors. Yeah, absolutely. It really is. And, you know, I I hope that the, the Internet is sprawling and messy enough that um, corporations can't completely contain it one day. And, uh, and because really the gatekeepers who tell us what the rules are can be proven wrong every day on the Internet. So I, I guess I'm always a rebel and wanting to break people's rules because <laughs> rules are arbitrary. And if the rules are telling you that your story is not worthy of being told to the world, you have an avenue now to tell it. And you might not get the broadcast that every, you know big media companies can give you, but you may affect one person. And if your worldview affects one other person, that is a victory of creativity. You managed to parlay the guild into Geek and Sundry. What exactly is Geek and Sundry and where is it going now? Uh, Geek and Sundry is a company that I created three years ago with YouTube. They uh, they invested in me and my idea of making an umbrella that could contain the world of the guild uh, on a multiple show level. And I now have a digital media company that is uh, is very robust. I have a dozen employees and I get to be behind the camera producing a lot of amazing content. I get to offer my fans uh, my own shows in front of the camera as well as other people's visions. And I get to make content for all platforms. We have live streaming six days a week, uh, six hours a day. We make big glossy shows that uh, feature tabletop games, which have had a resident renaissance that's kind of parallel to uh, our making the show tabletop. And uh, we're expanding into television and on uh, and, and the online, offline world and in live events and, and all, everything in between. So it's really great to be um, under the umbrella of now Legendary Entertainment that bought my company last year and be able to um, move off of YouTube, um, still being on that platform, but also being everywhere. Because really the, the, the grand equation of the digital world is 
every piece of content you consume is equal in attention. And audience attention is the most valuable thing. And whether it's a blog post they're reading or an audio podcast that they're listening to or a, you know, 20 hours of TV they're immersing themselves in or a video of a cat, you know, climbing a screen. Those are all attention. And I think you have to be attention curators for audience in um, in every way. So that's kind of the, the, the smorgasbord that I like to play in. And, and my digital company does all of it. Well, this book of yours, You're Never Weird on the Internet Almost, is certainly worthy of anybody's reading attention. Thank you. I've been speaking with Felicia Day. Her new book is You're Never Weird on the Internet Almost. Thank you for joining me, Felicia. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.